Hello and welcome back to another episode of Armchair Analysts, the only podcast with worse judgment than Eric Ten Hag. My name is Ruben Meadows and I've written and broadcast about all things football on platforms such as TalkSport Radio and Give Me Sport. My co-host Cameron McDonald has spent three years working as an FA license intermediary here in the UK. But above all else, we're fans. Yeah, thanks for that, Rupert. And um, it's actually not on the agenda for today's conversation, but I kind of want to—you've you've mentioned it there, and I kind of want to seize on it uh, for a couple of All reasons. Right, jump in, jump in. Uh, Eric Ten Hag and his—you uh, know what you've ascertained to be poor judgment—and obviously, I'm assuming that's in reference to the whole Jaden Sancho situation. Um, I, I want to sort of start off by asking you a question because, as uh, you know, long-term listeners of the podcast will know, you are not really a user of Twitter or X as it is now, uh, whereas I very much am terminally <laughs> online. Um, I wondered if you'd sure. seen any of the screenshots of people who have been playing <laughs> Jaden Sancho on FIFA or the new FIFA uh, EAFC um, over the weekend. I have not. There's been like a couple of things of, I, I guess people know his username and there's there was someone else, um, Diogo Yota, people know his username as well and he's been playing mentally a large amount of games. Um, but people have been playing, I think people are playing Jaden Sancho um when United were playing on the weekend and then someone last night posted a screenshot of them having beaten Jaden Sancho at three in the morning and people were like, so Jaden Sancho is just <laughs> playing lots and lots of uh, EA Sports FC um, and, and, and doing it. I mean, look, he, he maybe is in a position where he feels completely uh, disrespected by his manager and it started now uh, and so that's sort of his, his rallying protest. I did see something today from Sport Build that suggested that at Dortmund they had like a similar issue where they were like, Jaden Sancho just loves playing video games late at night and then he wakes up late and comes into training late. So I'm not... Um, <laughs> Not wow. patting United on the back in their treatment of this. They've already done some. I'm pretty sure they've like broken some. Or they've broken confidentiality. Certainly, I don't know enough about you know employment law to say whether that's against the law. But um, they've done some, made some mistakes already. Um, but uh, certainly, Jaden Sancho is uh, holding his ground um, and certainly holding his PlayStation controller as well. He's uh, and you know what, actually, it, it did kind of make me think. I was thinking about this on my on my walk home today, like. I might get it this Friday. <laughs> if it's that good, it's worth risking your 300k a week job. I might get it. <laughs> it I mean, clearly it sounds pretty good. Um, I think it's more, you know, obviously, uh, regardless of the Jaden Sancho thing, I think um, some of the stuff that I've been reading about um, how he's been treating some some pretty mixed performances at Man U just seems a little bit, you know, um, maybe disconnected with reality. Yeah, a little bit. He doesn't seem to be the best judge of character either. There's like quite a few players well, and there's like a history exactly of yeah. stuff he's had with players that, you know, maybe there's a long series of coincidences, but then there's like, I think it was like a statement about um, Mark Overmars he made. Uh, I might be getting this wrong, so so please forgive me, Manchester United lawyers, if I am, but um, <laughs> the, like Mark Overmars had sexually harassed something or something like that, and he had said like ah he's welcome back at the club anytime um something like that in tandem with then all of the <laughs> different issues coming in are like hmm I, if i if i were a detective which i'm not i'd be piecing together the evidence on a big big cork pin board here and uh he'd be at the center with his bald head yeah he um you're absolutely right i think it was something to do with um like like some some racy pictures um and yeah he basically like backed uh backed Overmars to the hint um a lot is going on at Manchester United behind the scenes um there's stuff going on with Anthony I believe um in terms of um violent behavior towards women 
Um, and obviously the, the thing with Jaden Sancho as well. And it, it seems like there's a lot of furore uh, where there doesn't need to be and should not be. And uh, he doesn't seem to be too far from it all. Well, you've, you've left out the biggest one, of course, which is, I mean, he's not current, well, he's still a United player. Mason but he's not Greenwood, you mean? United. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Mason Greenwood, which is it, sort of the, the the biggest one of them all. And the fact that they've sort of had this big back and forth and they've now loaned him out. Anyway, uh, I, you know, that's been talked about ad infinitum. Um, not that it's not good to raise it. And the fact that there is just a crisis every week at Manchester United. Um, sure. But... Yeah, just 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 a very strange time, and uh, you know, again, I, I'm I'm even sort of minded to say that this is not something, maybe maybe not this specific flavor, but this sort of crisis culture is not something that started with Eric Ten Hag at Eric Ten Hag at Manchester United. They've really been uh, a place that has kind of conversely to uh, another club we're going to talk about a little bit later this episode, taken in lots of good players and conspired to find the bad player within them. <laughs> And, and always play them. Um, well, that's certainly true. Um, let's crisis hop, if you'll come with me, um, and jump straight into the largest scoreline that I saw this weekend, which was Sheffield nil, Newcastle 8. Mm, the Battle of the United. Sheffield United uh, picking up zero goals yeah, to, to Newcastle's 8. I was quite disappointed with this scoreline because every time, I don't know about you, but every time uh, a scoreline gets to a certain level, or even like when Newcastle beat... Um, when they scored, was it four really quickly against Spurs last season? And you're like, come on, break 10, break 10. Yeah. Everyone gets to like nine and then and then sort of pussies out. Um, and, and Newcastle uh, didn't even get to nine. But yeah, I mean, what was interesting about this, the record they did break I mean, is They were going 8-0. pretty consistently. They they scored in the 87th minute for their eighth goal. They Yeah, they, they did. But I was hoping to at least match the record. Well, they did, they did break a record of their own in that it is the first time that there have been eight different goal scorers from one team. Um in a game, which is quite interesting. Like the other nine nils, and certainly some of the other games have had seven, uh, but we've never had eight different goal scorers in a game, which is quite impressive. That every like every single goal was someone different. That that's yeah, a weird one. That it's crazy impressive um, and quite a scary sign. I think um, we've talked recently about Brighton and the fact that they seem able to get goals from anywhere in the pitch, and Newcastle definitely are of that same mold. Yeah, they, they definitely are. I, I do think by the end of the game, I, I mean, I'm thinking specifically of Alexander Isak's goal and Bruno Gamaris's goal, which I think were the seventh and eighth. You could they see were. Sheffield United were playing a bit like when you see teams at five a size and one of them has just sort of run out of energy because they're not as fit as the other team. And they've sort of, they're just sort of like, you know what, they're going to get the ball and score anyway. I'm not going to exert the effort and make the run because. I, if I do, they beat me anyway. Like a couple of them were <laughs> those two goals. Certainly, looks like it was against a team that just and and you know, fair enough, a six nil down. You've probably given up. Um, but yeah, it was a, a really dominant display from Newcastle. A really poor side from Sheffield United. Maybe a little bit hard done by in the first half with some of the decisions to go in three nil down. Um, but then you know, three nil down, you've still got a half of football to play. We've seen people come back from that. So to follow that up with five goals conceded in the second half um, kind of strips away any sort of reasonable excuse you have um a couple of questions for this season because Sheffield United are of course one of three teams that are at the sort of rock bottom of the table with one point one of three teams that you predicted to stay up Um, (laughs) our three promoted (laughs) sides Sheffield United Luton Town and Burnley a couple of questions number one are we going to see Derby's record broken this season. Is someone going to pick up less than 11 points? It's really early doors. Um, so 
and there's obviously, you know, however many points there are to play. How many have we played? 32, 36? There's 90, 96 points to play We've for. We've played uh, five or six games um, so far. Yeah, so there's still 96 games to play for if there's 32 games left. So, you know, uh, they could all smash Derby's record and all win the league. But um, at the moment, it's not looking great. It really isn't. Um, yeah, all three um, look at <laughs> absolute liabilities of going down. Um, I still have faith that at least a couple of them might be able to pull themselves out. But um, yeah, uh, I think that to, to maintain that level of consistency that Derby managed is pretty impressive. Um, we might well see a run of form and it really only takes a couple of good months to to kind of take you out of, of you know, being in the running to only score 11 points in a season. Um, and I would say that definitely looking at Burnley, I think there's enough quality there to to have a couple of good months if they get a good run of form, run of games going. Um, Luton, I maintain my my incredibly sound, stout, sound, resolute argument vibes alone. of vibes. Vibes. Um, I think, you know, as soon as they, they get a couple, they might... It only takes one win, and then suddenly you're having a good time. Um, Luton are going to be fine. <laughs> um, Sheffield United, clearly in trouble. Clearly in, in a serious amount of trouble. Um, and have not really... Well, I, I think Luton as well. Um, are threatening, definitely, to, to beat Derby in, in the worst tally of points ever. What's weird about Sheffield United, though, is that other than this absolute drubbing, they've not looked... Like, like, I mean, they've had a few games. I'm thinking specifically about the game against Manchester City and the game against Tottenham, where they've kind of made two of the best teams in the league really work for a win there. And they have ultimately lost, but you went, okay, this team obviously isn't the best team in the world. And, you know, they are coming up from the championship and that's evident. But hey, on their day, they can make anyone sweat. And then they've kind of made anyone who's held that opinion go, oh, no, they are really just dog uh, by holding eight at home. I mean, this is ironically the, the first time in the season that they've lost by more than one goal. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. These are sort of narrow, narrow losses um, that they've had so far, at least in terms of the result. Um, so, yeah, so, so I think, yeah, Sheffield United, are, are, I think, are the, are the worst of the... Are they worse than Luton? God, it's a race to the bottom. They're currently, those, they're currently bottom, yeah. They've got minus 12 goal difference and Luton have the, minus they eight. They are. I, I, minus I mean, more oh, you're just quality. talking in general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but you're correct, right. they are, by virtue of <laughs> conceding eight goals at the bottom of the table. Um, yeah. Well, well let, they, let me ask they the have made the then. incredible tactical decision early on in the season to uh, start cutting out competitions when they, they lost um, on penalties to Lincoln City in round two of the Carabao Cup final last week. <laughs> yes, it's not great. Um, my second oh, question... Oh, sorry, not, so, not last week. But back, in, week. back at the beginning yeah, yeah. of August. Um. So, are we going to see Derby's record broken this season? It'd be interesting to. Part of me just feels like no. I think it's easy to sort of look at teams that have just come up, and obviously they're going to be a bit wide-eyed, especially Luton Town. Um, and we see this a lot of the time with... Um, we've seen it with teams that we have 
you know, admired at times. We saw it with uh, Marcelo Bielsa's Leeds. We saw it with that mental Norwich side that would like lose 4-2 loads and loads of times. The one where Timu Puki scored like a fair few goals. Like these teams come up and they're sort of used to, they haven't really ca- recalibrated yeah. to, the, to the Premier League yet. So I, I agree with you. All you need is a win um, to, to get that confidence up. And I could see certainly based on how some of these games have gone, these any of these teams picking up a win. Um and then who knows from there. 11 is quite a hard score to beat. Um, so I'm going to say no. Do you, do you think they might? Or are you saying Derby are safe for another season? Or safe with their record, I suppose? Well, I feel like it's it's such an impressive record. I mean, you've really got to take your hat off to, to Derby. They really set um, the standard in, in bad um, play. I think that of the seasons that you have, this is as likely as any to beat it. So I'm going to say I think there's a good chance. Mm, okay, well, a no for me and a sitting on the fence from you. Uh, question two. No, I'm saying, I'm, saying, I'm saying, yeah, broken? I think it's going to happen. Okay, okay, nice. Yes and no. Um, are we going to see the 9-0 record broken this season? Uh, I think yes. I think yes, we will. I think the quality is uh, of attacking play is higher than ever. And I think unless they buck up their ideas, I can see in the next few weeks... Um, any one of these teams getting caught a little bit unawares. I think it's one thing when you play, for example, a, you know, they clearly are going to raise their games for the the cities and the, and the Tottenham's and the teams like that. But I can just see if they've got like a really loaded schedule with sort of Carabao Cup games or, although you mentioned there that uh, Sheffield United are out of the Carabao Cup, are all three out of the Carabao Cup, potentially. Um It'll be someone Pass. who they're not... It, maybe it'll even be like Chelsea or someone. Chelsea will have their one good game where it all finally clicks and it'll be at the expense of like a poor old Luton Town or Sheffield United and get, get absolutely obliterated. Hey, I, I, I could see it. Um, I think no. I don't think 9-0 will be broken. I think you've really got to try pretty hard to win 9-0. And conversely, you've really got to try pretty hard to lose 9-0. Um, and I think that it's enough of a record these days and has been like matched but not beaten enough times that I think if you do get to around that mark, you'd probably as a club be pretty motivated to try and like avoid matching it or even get like getting beaten, beating it. Yeah, maybe. Although Sheffield United, as I said earlier, like I just thought they just looked like they were they'd kind of resigned to their fate a little bit. Um, Let's talk, well, the, the third and final question I've got for you. I sort of posited a while ago that I thought the gap between the Premier League and the Championship was maybe getting a bit smaller. Um, and you, of course, posited that all three sides would stay up on vibes. So we both had a lot of faith in these three teams uh, coming <laughs> up. Certainly not that we, th- we certainly didn't think they'd be as bad as they have been so far. I'm going to sort of turn it around and, and ask, especially when we sort of look at well, interesting, there are three different Premier League teams that have gone down last season that are having quite different kinds of seasons. Um, but I want to ask you whether you think the gap between the Premier League and the Championship is not smaller than ever, but is actually wider than ever. Do I think the gap is wider or smaller than ever in between? Well, well, well or, or neither. I, I'm asking, Premier we said a while ago it was smaller. We we said a while ago that it was smaller than ever, or I certainly said that, and you, I guess, inferred it by saying those three might stay up. I'm asking, you know, turn that on its head, is the gap actually wider than ever? Were we wrong to say smaller than ever, and actually it's wider than ever? I think that what's tricky is that while that gap is getting wider, I think the competing sensation is that the gap between the top of the table and the bottom of the table is getting wider. 
And so in that sense, it almost feels like it's not a gap between the Prem and the Championship. It's a gap between like the top 15 of the Prem and below, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I could definitely agree with that. I could definitely see like when you've got teams like, for example, West Ham winning the Europa Conference League. Um, yeah, it's easy to see how certainly in that sort of top 10, top 12, um, that the gap is widening. I think what I would say is that the gap between the top team in the championship and the top team in the Premier League is has never been wider. Yeah, and, that's and fair. that is I, I, by I, I, what, I like like that. one metric. That's one metric to determine the strength of a league is is how strong the best teams are. Um and yeah, I think if you pick probably over the last few years, um the top team, I think it has been a much wider gap. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I think that's a, that's a good way to uh, to wrap that up. Let's move uh, next into the North London Derby. Um, maybe the sort of biggest and sort of most, uh, you know, re- potentially rewarding North London Derby uh, for quite a long time because these two teams have, certainly for the last few years, sort of been duking it out like two homeless men fighting over a hot dog uh, and sort of going, ah, I'll finish seventh and you'll finish eighth. No, I'll finish seventh and you'll finish eighth. Take that. Um, and both teams are <laughs> in, in, in sort of different stages of their project, obviously. Um, Arsenal have been with Arteta for three years, um, but sort of Arsenal are riding... Uh, certainly a high based on last season and Tottenham are sort of they've got this new sort of dynamic manager and the big question was have they had their test yet this season and if they can go to the Emirates and and win it then all of a sudden that really lays a flag down Um, a draw in the end but I think uh, I mean firstly for the neutral really good game but also if you're a Spurs fan this is not as good as a win but really really positive sign Uh, I mean just the fact that even when the lineups came out the fact that Spurs this early into the project were willing to go with such an attacking lineup away to Arsenal, which is you know one of the hardest faces for most teams in the league, um, and play like that and also pick up two points was really really impressive. And I thought, to be honest, on the balance of play, if any team deserved to walk away with three points from this game, it was Spurs. That's interesting. I think um, they definitely pushed harder at the end. Um, on towards the in the second half of the game, um, I do think that the game did go the way that a lot of derbies go, which is always a shame. Which is that I think towards the end of the game, both sides were much more scared about losing it than they were excited about winning it. Um, but that's not. I think that's a fair uh, criticism of of a derby because you really just want, as you say, there two teams just duking it out to the very end. Um, I, I do think uh, Arsenal, when they had that plus 10, they sort of had a real rise then, but certainly they, they were sort of limping a little bit. There was like the first 35 minutes when they looked really good, then they basically let Tottenham play for an hour, and then at the last 10 minutes they were like, oh shit, actually we have a chance. Yeah, and um, never quite materialised, but um, yeah, I, I agree. I think um, a, a very encouraging performance from Spurs, the fact that, as you say, they can be ambitious and back it up at, at their biggest rival's home ground. Um, is a testament to the fact that they're clearly moving in the right direction. Isn't it crazy how it almost feels like the same sort of level of, not vindication, but um, obviousness that we talked about when we said that wouldn't Newcastle be a better team if they signed a centre-back? And we were like, wouldn't Spurs be a better team if they signed an attacking midfielder? And lo and behold, James <laughs> Madison gets two assists. 
What isn't it, isn't it crazy how sometimes the obvious answer might be the right one? Yeah, no, you're right. And, and he was he was tremendous uh, in this game. He was absolutely brilliant. Um, obviously, human son was as well. But I think James Madison has eased so many of the issues of Harry Kane leaving. Just in terms of like, it's a real statement signing. He's such a highly sought after player. He's he's a highly like he's such a good player in my opinion that I'm really surprised Spurs had such an open road to to go and get him. I think there's loads of teams he could easily play for. And I guess you know. Chelsea at the moment have got, you know, the dressing room is bursting at the seams. Uh, you know, Liverpool signed Dominic Shabozlai instead, uh, and Arsenal signed Kai Havertz instead. Uh, one of those signings has been very good so far. The other one has not. But I'm surprised that, for example, those two teams weren't looking a little bit close to home and going for a James Madison who, you know, knows the Premier League and, and, and is really interesting. I mean, Chelsea, the other one, they were sort of quite famously, it was reported a, a couple of weeks ago, quite famously, well, it's, it's been out in the news, that they decided against James Madison because he they have like this blanket no of 25 rule and Madison's 26 so instead they went for Cole Palmer for more money than James Madison which makes no sense um but yeah I, I'm a surprised Spurs had such an from a hilarious, hilarious club um I'm surprised Spurs had such an open road to run at him but yeah I think look there's there was lots to love about how Spurs played this game I think they exploited and I think this is a, a concern for Arsenal as much as it is a credit to Spurs they exploited the fact that they had had a full week's rest between games and Arsenal had not to perfection they chased down every single ball they were pressing that you know the second goal that equalized came from just every single time Arsenal had the ball there was one mm-hmm. or two Spurs players immediately breathing down their neck you know Spurs got to in an, on another day they nearly dispossessed Raya a couple of times they nearly dispossessed uh, I think pretty much every member of the the Arsenal back line uh, a couple of times um just with this really really aggressive pressing and the fact that Arsenal seemed to sort of like like inviting that pressure before playing to, to give it the least amount of space unfortunately when you're playing against someone like Hyungmin Son who's really rapid you can easily misjudge how much time you have left and I think they nearly did a few times um so yeah, I, I thought it was really impressive from Spurs to go in with that game plan and execute it with the effectiveness they did. It, it also concerned me a little bit about Arsenal because if this is how much the level drops when they've played midweek in the Champions League, they are probably not going to be in the mix this season because they have got a lot of midweek games. They've got a game tomorrow uh, in the Carabao Cup. They've got a number of group stage games and based on the strength of their group, um, they're probably going to at least make it through that group. You never know, but you would you would imagine they will. Um, and on this very small sample size of one, their first showing of managing load after a midweek game is pretty appalling. <laughs> yeah, it's um well, it's you know, it's part of the rebuild, isn't it? It's part of of any sort of rise is that you need to manage and balance the the ever competing um, competitions that you're in, and. Yeah, it, it seems like they're going to be spread pretty thin. And I think the other thing that I want to mention is, is you know, I think we've already seen enough of them to know that the problems that were there last season are still absolutely there with regard to them spending, I'd say, large periods of games quite apathetically, not not really putting teams to the sword. Um, they, they've conceded quite a few goals late on so far this season. Um, and also... They just they play very reactively, um, you know. They they conceded to Spurs immediately after they'd scored, but then I think against um, Manchester United they scored like the minute after Manchester United went ahead, um, and then only managed to score again in like, as you say there, they kind of put the put the energy levels up, only in extra time and managed to get two goals to win that game against Man U in extra time, and it doesn't always work if you if you leave it till that late. 
Uh, firstly, you you invite pressure and you can concede, which is what's happened. And secondly, you don't leave yourself a lot of time. And sometimes you can score like against Man U and sometimes you can't. Mm. Well, I was thinking that when I was watching it, they were sort of, as soon as that plus 10 went up, you could feel that surge and all of a sudden they were being really more, they would be a lot more direct. They were driving forwards, they were whipping crosses in. And it was kind of like, why have you left this to the last 10 minutes? You're like, you've had an hour to do this. Why are you trying to cram it in at the, the last bit? Um, I, I also think this is another game where, you know, Gabriel Jesus has come back from injury, um, and so maybe there's a little bit of that. But again, I, I just don't think, and I haven't thought the whole time that Gabriel Jesus is there. I think he's a really good signing for them. I think he's a great player, and I think he does things for that team in terms of, for example, enabling Bukayo Saka and Gabriel Martinelli when they've got a full complement, and how he sort of drops back and takes pressure. I think that's all brilliant. But what he is not, and what he has never been, is a 20-plus league goal-a-season striker. Um Similarly, I think someone like Eddie Nketiah would, you know, he seems like a lovely guy. Uh, and, it's, you know, it's, I love sort of seeing him come through for for England. And I, I loved when he had that record of like, I think he's the all time under 21 top scorer and stuff. Seems like a great character. Mm-hmm. He would be right at home at like a Crystal Palace or a Brentford, which is no disrespect to either Eddie Nketiah or those teams. They're good Premier League sides. But you're not going to win a title with Eddie Nketiah up front. That's just a hard fact. Um and yeah, I, I think mean, Arsenal just what missed we, out. What we discussed last um, last season in January, they needed to sign a striker and they didn't. Yeah, I- exactly. He had a sort of classic purple patch that all Arsenal players do when a window is open. Um, uh, but but and, and Eddie and Katty actually had the same when this window was open. He had quite a good start to the season. But, you know, when the going gets tough, you need an elite striker. And it's funny because there was a story, there's a sort of multiple different stories that have come out this week about Arsenal being interested in Ivan Tony, And one that was sort of that Arsenal were tr- interested at the end of last season in getting Ivan Tony in in the summer. And then they sort of delayed that plan until January because of his ban. And it's just like... That is so the kind of thing we've seen from Arsenal recently. It's like identifying a target and then being so tunnel visioned that you go, we won't sign this guy until January. What? There's six months of a season before then and we won't have signed a striker? Ah, we'll make do with Eddie and Katia. <laughs> also, like, why sign him in January when you can sign him now? It makes no sense. He'll be cheaper I, I guess, now, presumably, uh, because he's he's got longer to um, to wait before he can play. And you can put him in training, just bang him in training. He'll be ready to fire as soon as he comes on. I guess that bit makes sense just in terms of like, it's a bit of an unknown what, because he's, he's only now allowed to be back in training with Brentford. Um, so I guess it's a bit of an unknown whether he's going to immediately regain his top form. So maybe that bit is the only bit that makes a bit of sense to me. But like, if you've identified Ivan Tony and you've gone, we need a player, we need Ivan Tony, and then all of a sudden circumstances change, whether it's an injury or it's a gambling ban or they go out of form or something like that. And you're like, oh, okay, for whatever reason, we can't get this player right now. Don't just not get any other player. Go and get like a, a different player of a similar profile. There's not one player of Ivan Tony's profile in world football. <laughs> and the way Arsenal behave sometimes in the market is like there is only one player of that profile. Yeah, it's silly. I mean, I, I more meant when I said it, it is like if you are hell bent on signing someone to the point where you will disregard anyone, just sign them. Oh, yeah, sure. But I yeah, agree with yeah, you. Yeah. They should have absolutely look to other people if, if you were gonna you know especially because now i think the like the the story makes a bit more sense now because the price will have gone down because of the whole gambling thing but at the time like you probably have to be getting like 80 90 million out for for ivan tony explore other options look at uh you know off the top of my head someone like uh victor Osman. i think he'd be a bit more expensive or um who was the other one i was just thinking of uh that's like a similar profile 
it's it's lost it's left my mind now. But yeah, like go for go for other players um, rather than go. We can't get this one, therefore we'll get no one. Yeah. Would you have liked to have interest have seen Arsenal go in for someone like Brennan Johnson? Um, no, because I think he's got the same thing that a lot of their players, like Brendan Johnson's not really a centre forward. He's another sort of like, he's played up top, I think like for Wales, as like part of a front two, but he's sort of like a winger comfort. He's a, he's a similar player to, um, well, not, not entirely, but like kind of similar in some ways to Gabriel Jesus. Jesus. Like he's not, yeah, yeah he's not going to be like, uh, a t- I mean, a big part of it when I watch Arsenal all the time is they love to whip crosses in and they have two wingers that can really get into those spaces and sometimes they cut it back but sometimes they put these balls into the air and they get a lot of corners as well because they're a very attacking team half the time it's just pointless they scored some decent corners last season and they've had some routines this season but you're just taking a dimension out if you haven't got a big tall center forward they've got the two center backs who come up for them but like two versus like five tall people in the other box just statistically most of the time you're not going to score from those uh whereas if they had a big physically imposing center forward they could just you know, they would immediately sort of see that the efficacy of their corners and, and set pieces go up um i think it's a real no-brainer and i think the fact that they've not been able to do that before the start of the season may well represent a missed opportunity because hey they could sign ivan tony in january but by that point they could be 10, 12, 15 points off Man City. And, and then it's kind of pointless, <laughs> even if Ivan Tony scores 30 goals from the from the mid-season point because you're not going to close the 15-point gap on City. Yeah, yeah, very true. Um, I think I agree with you that they are not quite on the boil to compete with Manchester City this season. And I think that takes us probably quite nicely into what we're going to do- talk about next, which is can anyone... Mm, can anyone beat City? Six wins from six uh, so far this season. I would say not the hardest start to life this year with in terms of the, the quality of the opponents. Um, but it's just the fact that they, as I sort of talked about last last week, like they've been doing this, they, they've been able to sort of essentially not turn it on for games until they need to. Um, and even with so many injuries, like they've, they're missing Kevin De Bruyne. They've been missing Bernardo Silva at times this season. Jack Grealish has been injured at times this season. John Stones has yet to play a game. And now Rodri's been sent off after bizarrely strangling Morgan Gibbs-White in that game. And you still <laughs> kind of go... Are they, is that going to matter? I mean, like, the big question is, we just talked about them, City go to the Emirates in two weeks' time, and they'll have no KDB, no Bernardo, no Rodri. That is as big a handicap as Arsenal could ask for. And and you'd probably, if you had to put money on it, you'd say City still win that game, away at ostensibly the second strongest team in the league's home ground. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think um, the they just have such incredible depth. I mean, you lose Kevin De Bruyne, but you can bring in Yulene Alvarez and Phil Foden, who have three assists each already this season. Um, you know, you lose Rodri, but the amount of players that they have in defensive positions is such that it's and not going to be Nunez and Calvin Phillips. Calvin Phillips has come on from the bench twice already. Um, yeah, you said there, Nunez, they've got, um, uh, you know, enough centre-backs as well to put someone like Nathan Ake in midfield if you needed to. Um Kovacic obviously can also play a little bit more of a defensive role if if he had to. Um, it's just not it's just not really a concern. Um, no, it, it, it's really not. And I 
I think they could they could go on to you know they've won the treble and they've spent two hundred million on improving the team and sort of eking out the kinks. I think that this could be the year that they maybe like go unbeaten or something, which is a, a bizarre thought because you'd never like people have got close, um, but there's always I mean like, you know you're unbeaten until you're not. So all it takes is one crazy win from like Crystal Palace and we come back down to earth. But I, I really just look at it at the moment and I go, who beats this city side? Like who step forwards? Yeah, I, I agree. Um, well, what's quite fun is that in the, over the next two months, almost all of the big clubs will step forward. Um, they've got Newcastle, albeit in the um, the League Cup. They've got Arsenal, as you mentioned. They've got Brighton. They've got Man U away. Um, and then later on in November, they've got Liverpool. I'm not even going to mention Chelsea um, and Spurs and Villa. So everyone's going to be taking a crack at them um, between now. Are and the they end of though? Because I think I think the thing with City now, and you see this with some teams, is they've gotten so good that I think some te- like where some teams in the Premier League, and this is you know what makes it great, will have looked at like essentially any other team, especially like like a United, for example, who says Old Trafford. A lot of United's fall was sort of attributed to how. Like what's what's that? Is it from a video game or is it from no? It's from three hundred. You know that quote where it's like, if you can make a god bleed, no one fears him anymore. And I think we saw that happen with Manchester United, where as soon as Old Trafford lost this like almost like mythical facade of being like this like impregnable fortress, everyone started going there and getting points. It's kind of like with City now that teams before the game are like, we're not really gonna win. Like even if we score, they're just gonna score five. So. Let's conserve our energy for the matches where we might actually get a point or win, which is every other game. Yeah, absolutely. And and also not just the practical components of that, but also the psychological battle of, of coming up against this dominant city side. I actually was thinking uh, um, today about the reverse, which is Chelsea, um, and just how I'm sure every club at the moment is just thinking, if we're ever going to get three points at Stamford Bridge or against Chelsea, it's now we have to go for it. And and the reverse is absolutely true. A lot of clubs will be looking at and going, we might as well just damage control. Yeah, I think so. Well, let's move into a bit of useless trivia before we wrap up with some some other games. I've got quite an interesting mm. one for you, uh, Rupert, because um, it's something that happens a little bit later today. Uh, and by the time of listening, uh, for our listeners, it'll have already happened. Um, you may be familiar with the Red Bull stable of clubs, you know, Salzburg, Leipzig, uh, New York Red Bulls. I think there's a um, one in Australia mm. as well. Um, but there's a there's a number of them around the world. Um, and in 2005, uh, Red Bull bought and rebranded Austria Salzburg, creating Red Bull Salzburg. Um, the fans of that club were <laughs> so annoyed and so upset that they founded a Phoenix club and had to start out in the seventh tier. Later today, more than 18 years later, the two teams will actually go head-to-head for the first time since in the second round of the Austrian Cup. There you go. That's wicked. Do you know what's funny is I actually was reading... Um, the, there was an article in, the BBC did about this very game um, that I was reading just earlier titled um, A Derby 18 Years in the Making. Um, and uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, what a what a sort of like passionate game. This is sort of, especially because it's not an example of something like an FC United of Manchester, where it's a splinter group from you know 
disaffected fans it's literally these fans have been pushed out because the club's been taken and they've had to fought well i suppose people like fc Manchester united Manchester fans would say that's more or less what happened to them but <laughs> this is like the club's been rebranded they've actually been sort of their club stopped existing in, in its form um so yeah really interesting one and i think most football fans will be on the side of uh austria salzburg <laughs> probably um what's quite funny is um i uh in that article, it was also talking about the fact that um, apparently in Germany, there's a little bit more of a culture of changing club names. Um, and apparently for one season in 1994, um, the season that Austria Salzburg reached the UEFA Cup final and lost to Inter Milan, they renamed, renamed themselves Casino Salzburg, which I thought was also pretty brilliant. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's quite funny. Um, nice. Well, I've got a little piece of historical trivia for you, actually, um, which is fun, which is um, it comes from 1962 and Brazil's World Cup um, this year um, and, and this tournament was the year that they decided to um, test out the then extremely revolutionary controversial formation that we know and love today of the 433. Did you know that when it was first uh, brought to the fray, um, it was nicknamed by pundits the Penguin? Uh, yeah, well, I suppose I could see that. I mean, it's, uh, Penguin's not the first thing that comes to mind, but sure. <laughs> it, it seems like a bit of a stretch, but um, there you go. When, whenever you next see uh, a team playing with 4-4-3, you can say with confidence, ah, yes, the Penguin. <laughs> It's funny because not not that many formations have, at least to my mind, um, sort of alternate names. There's the Christmas tree when people do the four three two one. Um, people course, used to always talk about a lot in Italian football. And there's the the WM, which is like the real, you know, the one from like back when association football started, and that was like the common one. Other than that, mm -hmm. unless I'm sort well, of let's not forget the diamond, my friend. Yeah, I, I guess, but that's like a diamond or like a box midfield. Those are, those are describing aspects of uh, a thing like if you were calling it the diamond in the jeweler's box then i would accept but the diamond is just uh describing an aspect of the lineup it's not the penguin on the iceberg i mean uh, the christmas tree i think is also <laughs> quite no, obviously but, describing the shape but, of but the both, formation no but both both the penguin at, if you're like both the penguin and the christmas tree describe the totality of the uh like the, the christmas tree is literally from the peak of the, the christmas is actually probably the best one because it's the striker is the tip of the christmas tree it goes out wider and then you've got the keeper who's actually the tree at the so trunk the, goalie, the, yeah. the um the sort of the the diamond i would suggest is one and, and the penguin is sort of maybe one less than even that because you've got sort of the feet of the penguin i'm assuming are the back four and then the arms and the body are the sort of the midfielders what's the keeper there is it is it the penguin is the penguin standing on something but then you've got something like the diamond or the box midfield. those are only describing one part of it <laughs> so so i would suggest <laughs> that that's not quite the same as the christmas tree or indeed uh the penguin i i agree i think um i think we can all agree that the christmas tree is is the greatest nickname in formations that there is you're you're setting my mind racing as well or like tiago motta's 28 whatever it was <laughs> 271 something like that 
Yeah, I mean, the 272, uh, that is quite a sort of Bielsa esque uh, formation. I was wondering, speaking of Bielsa, if there was some sort of like the rattlesnake formation, which is just like one, 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 and all the players sort of snaking around the pitch, probably sometime when he was at Chile. Presumably, yeah. If it was going to be anyone, it'd be him. It absolutely would be. Um, let's move next into, uh, well, from one series of jokes to another. Uh, Chelsea nil, uh, one <laughs> Aston Villa. Um, another pretty bad performance from Chelsea, and I am pretty pissed off uh, at this one because, as you mentioned last week, Chelsea had done the real service to me of allowing themselves to be easily extrapolated over the course of a 38-game season, uh, picking up one point per game. They'd also scored five goals and conceded five goals at the time they'd played five games. So this 1-0 loss has thrown everything out of whack. My models and my graphs and my data is just, it's in pieces, Rupert. Is a shame. But, you know, all they need to do in the next two games is win one and then draw, which, you know, I think Pochettino would probably be pretty happy if they manage that. Um, and then you're back on track. And if they can win by only one goal, then you'll be eight for eight. And Indeed. Zero. But, but up to and until that point, I remain fuming. Based on that alone, I certainly want Pochettino to go. Um, question to you, is the axe already over his head? I mean, it's it's difficult to gauge what is going on at, at Chelsea headquarters, and we've already had I, I think, like, Beydad Egbali was in the dressing room again, and apparently that's become really routine, and sometimes Big Todd's in there, and the owners are spending more time in the dressing room than they are figuring out what laws they're sticking to or not sticking to, and and researching players that they've been suggested to sign. Um, it's, really, it's just all going wrong with Chelsea, and I think it'll be something that it, it, it's not any less incredulous any time it happens, just because you look at some of those players and you look at the amount of money that's been spent. This was, I think, the first game where Caicedo and Enzo have started together, correct me if I'm wrong, um, and it just didn't do anything. They got absolutely overrun in midfield, partly because Enzo Fernandez is doing this thing again where Pochettino's playing it was like a, a 10, which is not the position that he has ever played in, to the best of my knowledge, unless he was playing there at River Plate or something, but it's certainly not the position he's playing at, at for Benfica yeah. or Argentina. Um, and so Pochettino has put him there, the £106 million signing, to accommodate Conor Gallagher. That seems dodgy. And also, ironically, Conor Gallagher has played further forward when he was at Crystal Palace. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right? That was the whole thing with Conor Gallagher. It was like, oh, he seems really versatile. He can play in a number of positions. So you're breaking up the sort of the most expensive, you know, midfield partnership in Premier League history to accommodate not only a guy who hasn't been that good for a while, but also a guy who, of the three, is probably the most comfortable in that role. It, it really is funny, isn't it? And I think, um, well, if I were to put on my extreme armchair analyst hat and, and just kind of weigh in on Chelsea, what I don't understand is this is a side that has you know one of maybe the strongest no we'll say one of the strongest two-man midfield potentials in the whole league you know i think the combination of caicedo and fernandez as a flat two would be fantastic and maybe even have colin gallagher as as deputy um and yet they seem pretty insistent on on not doing that um and personally i, I don't understand it yeah, well, that's the thing is like, it's such a, as you mentioned there, that word potential, it's potential in that it could be a midfield for the next 10 years. And it's potential in that like, it's a midfield that you would be expecting to get better and better, even as the season goes on. And they're not going to form that relationship and form, form that sort of understanding if they're not playing in those positions together. It seemed like that was, I mean, it was an absolutely ridiculous amount of money to spend on a midfield pivot, but then to not even play it as a midfield pivot is, is bizarre. Um, yeah, it just seems like a weird decision. I also think 
Well, so, so I saw something quite interesting this week, which is that um, make of this what you will, and different people will draw different conclusions from it. Um, but there are only two teams in the Premier League this season that have won every game on XG, uh, being Man City and Chelsea. So Chelsea, despite the fact they've only won the one game this season, have won all of their games on XG, but they've just not been finishing their dinner at all. Wow, that's hilarious. Um, yeah, it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, well, obviously XG comes with a pinch of salt, but um, you know, it, it's what um, Mauricio Pochettino has been saying. Um, at the end of this game, he said, um, you know, can't fault the team for trying, and we're creating loads of chances. And, you know, the obvious thing there is there's a serious problem if you're not converting those chances. Yeah. And, and I think that's the stranger thing is that they've spent all... The, I mean, this isn't exactly a hot take, but they've spent all this money. And but it's not-, not a good team. Yeah, obviously they've spent all that money, but I just don't back it as a, as a team, as a whole. I don't think they're good players. I don't think they've spent their money well. I think, you know, they always spent a lot of money as a, as a club, but it's been more since Todd Bowley took over that that money has been really badly spent. Christopher Nkunku, I think, obviously a quite good signing. But beyond that, you know, half of these players that they're signing, I'm sure a lot of fans are having to Google them. They're not household names. They're not, they're not players at the top of their game that Chelsea fans are used to signing. Um, and, you know, even players like Marcus Alonso, I think, when he came in, um, was, a, was more of a, a well-known player than a lot of the players that that's, that Chelsea have been picking up over the last year or two. And it's just been such bad money spent that I agree with you. Yes, it looks crazy when you see how much money they spent on it. But also, it look it doesn't look like a team that's worth that much. It's, it's a really funny metric that I've not really thought about before. Like what, like how many, what percentage of your fan base has to Google a player when you sign them as like... <laughs> A potential indicator of quality. Because, of course, the counterpoint would be, you know, Brighton sign players who everyone, even, like, the really hardcore, like, Anorak football fans are like, I have never heard of this player in my entire life. And they turn out to be brilliant after four minutes in the Premier League. So it's not always, you know, being a known quantity does not always necessarily mean that you're going to be good. And being an unknown quantity does not necessarily always mean you'll be bad. But it is certainly an interesting metric of, like... And I agree with the point. Like, a lot of these players that... Of course, the key difference is, and I don't think you're even saying that unknown players are bad, but more that when Brighton pick up these unknown players, they're picking them up for like half a million. Whereas when Chelsea pick up these players that no one's ever heard of, they've also come with a price tag of like 35 million. Yeah, exactly. And and I don't know what it is at Chelsea, but it's been a, a consistent problem for a long time that when players come in, they they don't adapt very quickly. And I think that Obviously, you have to praise the the scouting networks of um, clubs like Brighton. But at the same time, I think the problem goes deeper for the club. I think it has to also be about things like the the staff that um, the brief players, because clearly, like they're not understanding their roles. I think half of the the difficulty in onboarding players, obviously, kind of language aside is the fact that they need to understand complex systems quickly. And some clubs seem much better at educating players than others. And Chelsea seem terrible at it. Yeah, and, and you mentioned the language thing, but it's not like, like Chelsea have been a sort of top Premier League club for a long no, enough no. time that... Yeah, I agree. That they I mean, have that was like... more just like a... But yeah. 
No, no, no. But no, I'm not even disagreeing with that. But I'm just saying, like, it's all the more bizarre that they would have the interest. Like, Chelsea probably have a million and one. Tra- and, and also, like, has anyone joined the club that wouldn't speak a language that's already spoken by someone already at the club? Aside from, like, maybe Mudrick. But, you know, there'll be a few people who can speak. That's like probably still hanging around somewhere. Um, uh, that's, that's probably going to be taken <laughs> in, a, in a really bad fashion. Um, but... Um, <laughs> uh, um, yeah, like like any of these players joining that, you know, Chelsea have loads of French and Portuguese and Spanish speaking players. Who's joining that is like, ah, I don't feel at home at all. Um, well, everyone, but not not for language or cultural reasons, I would imagine. I think you're right. Um, I don't I don't think it's I don't think it's many at all. Yeah, so 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 it makes it all the more bizarre. Um, yeah, I, I do think it's another weird game. On the other hand, Aston Villa, um, they have uh, picked up a great three points here. Ollie Watkins scoring the first of his 20 league goals this season. Watch this space. Um, and yeah, another good <laughs> performance from, from uh, Unai Emery's Villa. They are, so interestingly, I saw something uh, today that it was a Premier League table of um, 2023 to date. Um to be clear, not the 2020, not the 23 24 season, but like all of, so the back end of last season and the start sure, of this sure. season. And City are at the top of the table with, I think it was 73 points. And then Arsenal, Liverpool and Aston Villa are all tied on 55 points. I've seen this as well. And yeah, the the standout um, club was Aston Villa for their very impressive year so far. Um, going from strength to strength. Um, yeah, it's really quite impressive. Absolutely. Um, and they, yeah, I think they're, they're slowly coming to the same level as I think Brighton in terms of everyone's esteem. Um, yeah, which so, is so, no small so, so that's what it was. It was, um, yeah, City on 71, Arsenal, Liverpool and Villa on 55. Br- like even Brighton, you would have said Brighton would have probably been above Aston Villa. They're on 53. Newcastle, I guess Newcastle had a bad end to last season, but 46. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's pretty impressive. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, Aston Villa, I think were were good for this win. They had a good game plan and they stuck to it. Um, you know, I think I, I sometimes like to to talk about specific statistics. The statistic I want to bring out for this Chelsea versus Aston Villa game was the starkest contrast between the two teams, which was offsides. Chelsea had 10 offsides over 90 minutes. Aston Villa just won. And I think that that kind of reflects the the different game plans that they each tried to set out. Aston Villa had slightly less possession but had more chances both on and off target and just looked the better side, the better drilled side. Mm. They, they, they absolutely did. And I think it'll be, are they going to finish fourth? Probably not, but I think it'll be interesting to see. We seem to have like, and it's sort of back to what you were talking about at the very start of the episode, the best of the rest seem to be as strong as ever. Um, and, and that can only be a good thing. Um, I want to talk, I want to move on to the next sort of best of the rest team. Uh, Cause I just, I, I sort of wanted to talk a little bit about something uh, that kind of impressed me recently and and sort of surprised me as well and that is the deceptive depth that Brighton and Hove Albion seem to have recently they seem to be a side that despite having not only spent loads of money um, but also not have made that many waves be the only team that are not named Manchester City that can kind of name two 11s of roughly equal ability which is really surprising like that's the kind of thing you only ever see from like Manchester City sort of type teams or I think Jose Mourinho's uh, Chelsea was one because he sort of insisted on having two international players in each role and the fact that Brighton have got to this point is really impressive the reason it jumped out to me was because I noticed that 
Obviously, they lost midweek in their Europa League opener. But the ge- the 11 that they played in that game versus the 11 that they played against Bournemouth, only two players started both games, which is, like, insane for a team like Brighton. Normally, that is, again, like, it's the teams with really deep benches because they've had loads of money put in and they've got sort of top youth academies. And, and although you might say, oh, okay, well, look, they lost that game anyway, so the squad isn't that deep. Even between the game they had against Bournemouth, uh, where they won 3-1, and the game they had against United, where they won 3-1, the, the teams were really, really different again. You had players like Simon Adingra and Facundo Buonanotte, Billy Gilmore being replaced by Matoma, Mahmoud Dahoud, Pascal Gross. You had uh, Adam Webster being replaced by Jean-Paul Van Heck, Tariq Lamptey being replaced by Purvis Estupinan, and Bart Verbruggen being replaced by Jason Steele. So they've got real, real flexibility. And, and they can play a lot of these players like the fact that they've got it was such big news that Arsenal had sort of signed David Raya and they were going oh you know you don't really see teams have two goalkeepers this is a real sort of like you know concoction from Mikel Arteta and, and Brighton have sort of quietly done it themselves signing for Bruggen and sort of also going to Jason Steele that you're going to get first team games as well it's not neither or yeah absolutely and I think um I think that Brighton are the only team so far this season that have played every single member of their squad so far already. I mean, it wouldn't surprise. I mean, that that's you know one and the same, right? If, if they're managing to name almost completely different elevens game to game, eventually there's going to be you know, <laughs> you're exhausting who's who's able to be brought out. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, and granted, uh, one of their players, Carlos Beleba, has only played 17 minutes, but still, um, that's wildly impressive. That after only five or six games they've gone through their whole roster and, and have not dropped off in, in any sense no no they really haven't and it, and it just it allows them to do stuff like for example uh when they played Bournemouth at the weekend they were struggling a little bit and then they could bring on Karu Matoma <laughs> fresh off the bench uh, and sort of score the two goals to, to win them the game which is like bringing a player of Matoma's quality off the bench is again the kind of thing you would expect from a top six side even you know some teams like uh I mean, you know, certainly someone like uh, like a Chelsea couldn't afford to bench someone of Matoma's strength at the moment. So it's it's really really telling that they have that ability now. Absolutely, and um, I mean, yeah, they just seem to be um, nailing every single aspect of running a club. I mean, to be getting players like Ansu Fati on loan is nuts. Yeah, and he's he's not even like he's obviously being weaned in, which is the correct way to do it. But it's amazing that Brighton can not only sign Barcelona's like once massively fated youth talent on loan, the guy who took the number ten off Lionel Messi, but also that they've got him in and he hasn't suddenly had to be the star of the show. He you know, he's got there and they're like, Okay, Ansu, like you're gonna sort of, you know, take your lumps like everyone else and do your stuff in training and get twenty minutes here, twenty minutes there, maybe the odd start and sort of come in. And and you know, you could say much the same of someone who has had a very different career path, but he also has you know a lot of other clubs will be starting every game Evan Ferguson I mean top strikers are at an absolute premium and Evan Ferguson yeah. is looking to be every bit of top striker and Roberto Zerbi still going well hang on Evan I know you scored a hat trick but let's just sort of you know let's calm you down and I know he had an injury and that played part of it but he came back I think against the in the Europa League and then it was back out of the 11 and he's sort of being just gently managed in and around the squad which you know, only time will tell if that's a more effective thing than slapping him in and he scores however many goals. But, you know, I'd, I'd be inclined, given Deserby's track record so far, to think that he's probably doing the right thing. Yeah, absolutely. It was funny and I think, um, well, partly a, a sign of just how, how much things have changed, where even though we now have a slightly more resurgent Man U than we've seen in, in the last decade, um, 
it was just funny to watch Ansu Fati come on from the bench um, for Brighton as they were beating Man U 3-1 at Old Trafford. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a very surreal moment that this season has created already. Yeah, a, a really bizarre time. Um, last two games, I want to talk about big, um, well, not necessarily upsets, but big results. Um Luton win a point, Claxon. Uh, that's the first one. They've managed to get off the mark um, with a contentious penalty, I would say, against Wolves. Uh, so Wolves <laughs> fans will probably not be super happy. Uh, but they've got a point, nonetheless. And whatever else happens, they've got that to hold on to. They do indeed. They're off the mark. They're on the mark. I, I did think it was a little bit sad that they got the penalty awarded after Pelle Rodakampanzu came on. I think that's the second time they've had a penalty with him on the field and they haven't given it to him. Like, Luton are not going to score a lot of goals this season. G- give him one, for Christ's sake. They're, you know, they're just, they're weaning in the vibes. <laughs> but this is it. Their, their XV is too low to stay up at the moment. If they, <laughs> if they let him take one of them, the XV would be through the roof. That is true. That is, I, I can't disagree with you. I can't argue. <laughs> The other one was that uh, Everton actually managed to get a win. Um, maybe slightly buoyed by the uh, the sort of impending acquisition by 777 Partners. Uh, they managed to put three past Brentford at Brentford. Uh, Dominic Calvert-Lewin coming in uh, and actually managed to get a goal for the first time in what feels like 50 years. Um, and all the team playing quite well. They sure were. Pretty, pretty impressive um, it was. And um, yeah, I think, uh, well, could could be um, a, the sign of a, of a bit of an uptick in performances. I wanted to put a question to you, Cam, which is, do you think that the Everton wins a game klaxon is the same as the Luton pick up a point klaxon in your head? Uh, they're slightly different klaxons to me. One is like a new out-the-box klaxon that they bought six weeks ago. Uh, and the other is like a really battered klaxon that has been sort of like had rocks thrown at it and, uh, you know, been abused for many, many, many years. That's how Sean Dyche rings, rings the klaxon, klaxon can. Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, so one other interesting thing to sort of end on a note. Uh, we talked at length about 777 Partners uh, last week. I read an article today uh, about... Um, Basically, 777 Partners own the British Basketball League. Uh, it's one of their sort of non-football sporting investments. They, they have a weird thing where they own the league and they also own one of the teams within that league, the London Lions. Um, and the league is in a lot of trouble at the moment because the owners of the league, or at least one of the owners of the league, 777 Partners, have not been making payments. And I think, oh, like nearly a million in you know, I think it's like taxes or something that they haven't paid and certain fees. And so the league is at risk of going like insolvent. And as a result, oh, and what's what's been called an overwhelming majority of the teams in the league have like voted against 777 partners continuing to, to own it. It's, uh, it's not quite the, um, the, the knight in shining armor that I'm sure Everton fans are, are hoping for. Um, well, what, that, what that seems two things... to be looming on the horizon. Well, one of two things could happen in response to that. Either that is a big red flag for the fit and proper person's test and the so powers that be go, you're, you're in the middle of tanking an entire league. We're not going to let you take over a Premier League club. Or, because we live in the real world, they'll fly through that proper, fit and proper person's test and they will be new owners that may not be the best for Everton. So, Everton fans, uh, enjoy this short-lived dopamine rush while you can because uh, 777 might be coming in to sink you once and for all. <laughs> 
Well, there you go. Um, and indeed, uh, speaking of the number seven, um, I thought I would share with you a another little piece of trivia that I noticed um, and also wanted to get your thoughts on, which was that currently there are eight teams which have less than seven points accrued so far this season. And with six games played for most teams, um, what that means is there are eight teams currently that if you were to extrapolate the points to the end, would finish with less than 38 points. Sorry, with le- less than 40 points. Um, and, and the most being 38. And that, to me, felt like a massive number and an indication of the fact that a lot of clubs have really been struggling so far at this season's start. Does that seem to you to be normal? Is this common? Am I Have I got a short-term memory and a lot of teams have slow starts or... Or is that a troubling statistic for you? Uh, I, I don't think it's a troubling statistic. I think like it, it, a lot of it is just down to um, you know how how the how the supercomputer shuffles up the league at the start of the year, isn't it? Like if a lot of teams like the, the, like we sort of talked about, for example, how uh, Manchester City have had quite an easy run uh, so far this season. We've also talked about how until this weekend, this past weekend, neither Arsenal or Spurs have had particularly big tests. Um, so what all of those things tr- being true necessarily means is that a lot of teams at the lower end of the table have had to play one of, if not more than one of, Arsenal, Manchester City and Spurs. Um, so... Now, I mean, and you can probably throw other teams in that mix as well, um, but those are just the three that come to mind because we've mentioned it this episode. Um, so, you know, if just by the nature of the beast, Arsenal, Spurs and City all have easy starts and necessarily the weaker teams have had to play them, whereas they haven't had the chance to play each other, they're going to have less points than if they started off all playing each other. So I, I don't think it's a cause of concern. As the biggest champion of the extrapolating points over the course of a season model, uh, <laughs> I am also duty bound to point out that context does matter. <laughs> Oh, well, there you go. I thought thought I had an ally with that one. Yeah, but, uh, yeah well, not. you know, um, there you go. The good news is for Everton and Luton fans that they play each other this weekend. So there's at least the opportunity for one of them to pick up some points. Mm, indeed, indeed. Well, that is probably a good place to end it for this week, Rupert. Cam, thank you very much. And thank you to everyone home for listening. We'll catch you next time. Cheers, guys. Bye. Armchair Analyst was recorded remotely by Cameron McDonald and Rupert Meadows. The album artwork was provided by our good friend Amschel.